You're listening to the All Indie Writers Podcast with host Jennifer Mattern. Helping serious freelancers, bloggers, and indie authors go pro. Hello and welcome. A belated Happy New Year. I hope 2015 is off to a great start for all of you so far. I'm Jen Mattern, your host of the All Indie Writers Podcast, and I'd like to thank you for joining me today for episode number six. You can find show notes and links to resources mentioned in this episode by visiting allindiewriters.com slash podcast slash six. So let's start by talking about blog revenue streams. And this is for those of you who run your own blogs, and you might want to make a bit of money from them or perhaps even want to earn a full-time living through your blog or multiple blogs for that matter. You have a lot of different options for how you can make that income from your blog. And you have the common examples like advertising, or you can get into things like product sales and services. And these can all be effective ways to make money with your blog. I've actually already published a post called Make Money Blogging 20 Blog Revenue Streams. I will include a link to that article in the show notes, which you can find at allindiewriters.com slash podcast slash six. But what I want to do in today's episode is simply go through 11 of those just to give you a few ideas of how you can get started. So first, you know, we'll talk about some of the more common blog revenue streams. Let's look at advertising. With ad networks, for example, you have some that will pay you per click. Others will pay based on the number of impressions. And some will pay based on actions. But the benefit of working with an ad network is that they find the advertisers and they bring them to you. Now, if you prefer to have more control over the advertisements on your site, and that's not to say that you have no control over what's shown by these ad networks, you you do. But if you want complete control, then you might want to rely more on private advertising. This took a hit several years ago when Google decided to go after sites that were selling links, text link ads. But you can still sell banner ads. You can still sell individual text link ads on your sidebar or in your content, wherever you want. Um, You just go about it in a slightly different way nowadays, such as no following those links. So they're not passing link juice for search engines. Another option that you have to have full control over what you're advertising is to work with affiliate programs and have affiliate ads run on your site. Again, those can be banners. They can be text links. You might write a review of the product or service or website or whatever it is, and you would include an affiliate link for anybody who wanted to purchase it after reading the review. And another option that you have where you can exercise a lot of control is with sponsored content. That is where advertisers purchase links generally within the body of your main content in your blog posts. Sometimes that means purchasing a link in content that you've already published. Sometimes they will hire you to write an article about them and include a link to them. And in other cases, the sponsor will have content already written that they want you to publish for them. And they'll pay you to do that, similar to a guest post, but you would get paid to publish it. 
Now, again, the benefit here is that you have a lot of control over what you accept and what you don't accept, and you get to set the rates that you're charging. The downside of sponsored content is that it can lead to trust issues with your readers. I am not a big fan of sponsored content. I don't publish sponsored content on any of my sites, though I have in the past. The problem is that you have a long history of bloggers and their sponsors behaving badly. There are a lot of cases where full disclosure isn't made, or disclosure might be buried at the end of an article where it really should be shared up front so readers know that this content is biased, in a sense, before they start reading it and invest time into this post. If sponsored content is something that you think would be a good fit for your site, what you need to be careful about is being honest and open about disclosures. No follow the links, disclose to readers up front at the beginning of an article that this is sponsored content. And, you know, don't, tr don't try to hide it. Don't try to get away with anything. And then you'll probably be fine. Some of your readers might still have a problem with it. And if you think that or know that your readers have an issue with sponsored content, then that might be a revenue stream that you choose to ignore and move on to something else. Now, another revenue stream that is fairly common these days for bloggers is to sell an ebook on your blog. This is one of my personal favorites, and I think that most new bloggers should have some kind of an ebook or a short premium report of some kind ready to be sold on their blog early on. One of the great things about ebooks on being sold on blogs is that your blog can essentially be used for market research for your future ebooks. So for example, you blog for a few months and you get to see what topics are people commenting on the most, what kinds of questions are they asking, what are they sharing the most on social media. Those things all matter and they're giving you insight into the things that your particular target audience really wants to know. Once you know that through your blog, you have the opportunity to create an ebook and go into much more detail. It's just this wonderful circle. They go so well together. Highly recommend that as an income stream for your blog. Now, I just very briefly want to go through a few that maybe you haven't tried yet or haven't thought to try. One is e-courses. Again, similar to ebooks, it gives you a chance to delve into a topic from your blog in more depth, in this case specifically to teach your reader something. Webinars are another good option. You can have members-only content on your site. You can have a premium feature, such as a job board related to your niche or industry. You might sell software or apps, if that's applicable to your audience. Or you could use your blog to sell related services. For example, I have a business blog where I sell freelance writing services, and the blog helps to promote those sales. A hosting company might have a blog that promotes their hosting services. If you're a consultant, your blog might promote that. Again, you can find more ideas in a post on the All Indie Writers blog called Make Money Blogging 20 Blog Revenue Streams, and I will link to that in the show notes at allindiewriters.com slash podcast slash six. Now it's time to move on to a community question. I asked writers in an online forum to pose some of their questions, and today we have one about indie publishing from a member using the handle JRBiz. Here's what he wants to know. 
quote, I have never written an ebook before and expect, therefore, that I would have to publish and market it myself. If I were to write one, it would be of high quality and targeted to IT types. The biggest reason that I have not done anything with this idea is that I have no concept of whether revenues from an ebook would justify my time. Any range of results or potential expectations for a first independently published ebook that you're aware of that could help me make such a decision? That is a good question, and it's a somewhat complex one. So, will the revenue from your first ebook justify the time spent creating that ebook? You know, the hard truth is that most self published ebook authors will not make a lot of money from each title they sell, especially their first ebook. You know, last year, I served on a subcommittee for the Horror Writers Association where we were looking into opening the organization's doors to indie authors, and I'm happy to say the HWA did just that. But in the research phase, the stats that the subcommittee came across showed that most indie authors actually didn't sell more than a couple hundred copies of their books. The stats varied a bit from each source, and I'll try to dig some of those specific links up for you and add them to the show notes. But despite the variation, the overall picture wasn't great. One thing I'll say here is to be careful about averages when you're looking at these kinds of statistics, because when you see stats saying indie authors earn a certain amount on average, you have to remember that those averages are skewed by the few extraordinary successes. So that said, am I saying it's not worth your time to independently publish an ebook? Absolutely not. You have to remember that even those bleaker stats are skewed. Not all indie authors care about making money, yet their sales stats can be factored in with those who actually put time and effort into their promotion and sales. And some of those authors on the bottom simply don't treat their publishing efforts as a business. And because of that, it's important that you not let those particular examples of authors influence your decisions. Ebook publishing can be very profitable, even if you aren't one of those authors making six to seven figures per title. Now, for example, in my most recent email newsletter, I touched on this topic, mentioning that my very first nonfiction ebook brought in over $4,000 in the year and a half I had it available for sale. But, you know, let me be clear, that's not some extraordinary amount to earn from a self-published ebook. That's actually fairly low. But for this particular ebook, $4,000 was great. And... That's because this particular ebook wasn't entirely about direct sales, and I didn't sell it for a very long period of time. It was actually written for the target clients of my PR firm, and it led to several very lucrative client relationships, which brought in thousands of dollars above and beyond the 4000 that it brought in in direct sales. And even though I have since made this ebook a freebie, a free download, it still brings in new clients who pay me to work for them. And it's been much more profitable to me in that sense, which was always the original intention. So yes, ebooks can be profitable. Now in that example, we're talking about a very short PDF only ebook. And I turned the whole thing around in a weekend. I also did very little marketing for this ebook, which is not at all like me. And Basically, I just put it on my business site and I promoted it in a couple of highly targeted niche forums where my target clients were hanging out. That was it. So even though it might not be an example of an extremely high selling ebook, 
what it does is it shows you just how worth it an ebook can be, even if it's a short, simple one, when you have solid business goals and an intimate understanding of your target readers. You know, unfortunately, that's something many indie authors don't prioritize early on. But if you do, yeah, the time you put in can be more than recouped with your ebook sales and other tie-ins. Now, I'm not going to get into, you know, the issue of nonfiction versus fiction here. In this case, we're talking about a nonfiction ebook for a tech-savvy crowd. We're also talking about someone who runs a retail site selling technology-related goods. So I would say that opens the income door for this author even more than most first-time ebook authors. Like in my case, it could be less about direct sales and more about attracting customers to increase product sales. But even with ebook sales alone, this person's in a great position. They already have a customer base, which means they should have an email list of those customers, which gives them an excellent avenue for promoting their ebooks and guides them to highly targeted buyers. If you know what your existing customers are buying, then you know what they need and you know what information relates to those products. Just give it to them. Now, for example, this individual sells a lot of PC-related cables. So why not publish tutorials on not only how to use some of them, but how to choose the right ones. This isn't even something that you'd want to target to home consumers alone. There, you know, there's probably even more sales potential if you target business owners and IT directors who have a need to purchase these kinds of cables in bulk. Picking the correct product for the job is more important for that group of potential buyers because they'll have a bigger investment involved having to buy cables in bulk for an entire office. So investing in your guide would be a no-brainer for them. Frankly, because of the retail tie-in potential, I would think an ebook could be highly profitable in this person's case, even if they gave it away for free or kept it shorter and made it more of a white paper. That would decrease the amount of time that they'd have to invest and therefore makes it easier to recoup that cost. Now go back to the ebook of mine that I mentioned previously. It was a short tutorial targeting the same group that I targeted with my business services. The ebook basically taught prospects how to do one thing that normally they would pay me to do. You know, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but that guide reached a new audience for me, the DIY crowd. By showing them how to do something at a pro level, some would pay for the ebook and go off and do it on their own. But many used the guide, they loved it, and when they decided to hire a pro later, they remembered me and hired me. Some even used the guide, they tried it themselves, realized it was harder to do than they actually thought, and so then they came back and hired me anyway. Now, you know, the person who asked this question has the same kind of potential here. By letting your ebook help to brand you as a trusted authority source of information in your industry... So when people want to know how to use the kinds of products you sell, they'll come back to you. And when they want to buy more of them, they'll think of you first. When you're in a position to tie an ebook to a retail situation like this, that's often more valuable than the direct sales you might see. One of the great things about nonfiction ebooks, specifically, is that there's no right or wrong length. You can sell very short ebooks about highly specific topics as long as you cover those topics thoroughly and solve the problem your target readers have. If you're worried that an ebook won't pay off in the long run, the best advice I can give you is to start small, see how things go, and then add another ebook down the road. 
After all, the more you publish, the more all of your ebooks are likely to sell because each title can help to market the others. And I hope that helps. Now it's time to share another awesome resource, this time one that can help writers of all kinds work more productively. You see, I've been on a bit of a mission lately. I try a lot of productivity apps, and I am a big to-do list person. In the past, I've used Google Calendars tasks, AnyDo, Wonderlist, Remember the Milk, Every Task, Tasks and To-Dos, Todooly, which is a great option, Chaos Control, which is the one I was hoping would be my go-to app this year, and even Astrid before Yahoo killed it, because Yahoo is where all good things go to die. And I'm sure I'm forgetting others here. So, like I said, Chaos Control was the app that I was hoping to use throughout this year. But it let me down in a few areas, um, which I won't go into here, but um, it was sad. But anyway, beautiful app, but it just wasn't going to work for me. When that happened, I figured I would just go back to manual lists. I love whiteboards and index cards for this kind of thing, but I prefer apps for the bigger picture planning and as a way to organize my to-do lists, not only by dates, but by projects. So there were several things I considered must-haves. I couldn't for the life of me find one app with all of them, and I was perfectly fine upgrading if it meant getting these features. Just nobody had them. Here's what I was looking for. I wanted the ability to set up folders with subfolders, multiple levels of subfolders, or projects and subprojects, whatever they wanted to call them. I wanted to be able to set up subtasks for my tasks. Hierarchy is very important in how I plan and stay organized. I wanted the ability to share lists so I could use the same app for personal lists, such as sharing shopping lists with my husband. I wanted a drag-and-drop interface. I should not have to open every task to change its project or folder or to change my task order. I wanted recurring tasks. That was an absolute must. And more specifically, I only work Monday through Thursday each week. So I needed a nap that could handle that when I set up a recurring, a recurring task. For example, a lot of them would only let you set things up as every day. Um, well, that doesn't quite cut it for me because I didn't want things on the weekend. You know, others could handle doing just weekdays, but they couldn't handle just specific weekdays without setting up separate tasks for each individual day and having them repeat weekly. It just gets complicated when I have so many things that get done on a daily basis. Another must-have for me was that it had to sync well between my phone and my tablet, and it absolutely must have a web app of some kind or a PC app, because when I'm adding a new project, I tend to break things down into a lot of small tasks. And it's much easier for me to add those large groups of tasks when I'm sitting at the computer on a normal keyboard. So that was a must. And that was another one that killed a few of them that I used to like. And, you know, the last thing that was a must for me was the ability to filter and or color code things. And much to my surprise, this was not an easy feature set to find. It got so bad that I had pretty much given up. But on a whim... I decided to try one more app, and I fell in love with Todoist. The funny thing is that I could swear I had already tried Todoist and rolled it out for some reason. 
but it seems like a great fit now. I don't know, maybe they upgraded it or made some changes since the last time I came across it. I don't know. The best part about Todoist, I can do all of these things that were on my must-have list, and I can do them all in the free version. So while I intend to upgrade in a month or two after I see that I actually stick with it, this lets me try all of the key features pretty thoroughly. Now, Todoist isn't perfect, though it's darn close for my needs. There was one problem so far, and it related to recurring tasks. Basically, when you set a task to recur, such as every day, it only shows up in your schedule for the next day that it's due. For example, if I have blog admin as an everyday recurring task, it will only show up on Monday until I mark it complete. Then it'll show up on Tuesday, but not Wednesday until Tuesday's marked as complete, and so forth. Why is this a problem? Because anybody who needs to schedule future tasks needs to know everything they've already scheduled on a future date. Having half the picture of what's really on your schedule is not helpful. And by leaving recurring tasks off of those future dates, you run the risk of overbooking with things like client calls or new projects or appointments, thinking that you have less schedule than you really do. It's something that I've seen dozens of other complaints about, and sadly they've been slow to address the issue so far. I did mention it to the Todoist folks on Twitter the other day, though, and was at least assured that they know it's a popular request and that they'd forward it to their dev team. So I'll keep my fingers crossed, but plan to keep using it in the meantime, and I still highly recommend it. The premium version actually adds even more great features, like the ability to add notes and file attachments to your tasks, location alerts, reporting, better labeling, and automatic backups. If you want to check it out, you can get it in your favorite app store. It's available for Android or iOS, and you can even download Windows and Mac apps to use on your computer if you don't want to use their browser apps. Um, Seriously, I've not seen a productivity app with so many options, though you might be out of luck if you use a Windows phone. The most recent comments I've found imply that they haven't released one yet, though you're supposed to be able to access the web version from your Windows phone, so it might still work for you. If you'd like to download it and give it a whirl, visit todoist.com. That's T-O-D-O-I-S-T dot com. And now a quick introduction to my next guest co-host, who will be joining me for episode number seven, set to be released on January 22nd. That would be Lori Widmer of the Words on the Page blog, which you can find at wordsonpageblog.com. Lori is one of three fellow writers who I often refer to as my go-to gals. The other two include Yolanda Prinzel of ProfitableFreelancer.com and Kathy Miller of SimplyStatedBusiness.com. These are the friends and colleagues I turn to when I need encouragement or just a good slap upside the head to snap me out of a writing-related funk. They're also my primary filter when I feel like a runaway rant train, saving the rest of you from at least some of my usual snark. And if you don't have your own set of go-to gals or guys, I highly recommend it. A group of close colleagues you can trust completely can be a real sanity saver. So again, be sure to catch the January 22nd issue when we will welcome Lori Widmer from Words on the Page. And that is all I have for you today. 
Remember, you can submit your own writing-related questions to be answered in a future episode through the contact form at allindywriters.com slash podcast by emailing me at jen, that's J-E-N-N, at allindywriters.com or by leaving me a voicemail at 484-575-1345. You can find show notes and related links for this episode at allindywriters.com slash podcast slash six. You can also access this podcast and related audio productions by visiting freelancetheater.com. You've been listening to the All Indie Writers Podcast with Jen Mattern, a freelance theater production. Freelance theater. It's all writers need for life's little episodes.